HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Meat and Three is back. We're kicking off our fourth season and celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary with a very special episode about our home, Brooklyn. Roberta's was such an interesting place with such a strong gravitational pull and attracted all these different groups. The neighborhood has changed a lot over the past decade from its culinary renaissance to the complicated implications of gentrification. I would say the majority of the people who are members of our co-op definitely have a certain purchasing power, are mostly white, and we are trying to change that. We're taking you on a journey that spans the birthplace of food radio to buzzy neighborhood pollinators to the transformative health journey of our borough president. That was my moment of, you know, wow, someone has thrown me a life raft and I'm going to take it. Subscribe to Meet and 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I would love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Today's theme, omakase, to entrust. Trust is an implicit part of eating in a restaurant. We must trust that the building is safe. We must trust that the people cooking the food are healthy and that they understand food safety. We must trust that the food itself is safe and not contaminated, that the water on the table is safe to drink, and much more. We're in the hands of others when you're buying food from, whether you're buying food from a cart or sitting down with a jacket on and a white tablecloth, you must trust. But more often than not, we are in charge of our own choice when it comes to the menu, what we eat in what order and what beverage is a choice. My mother always said that when you get to be an adult, you can have dessert first if you want to. This is our choice, but we still must place trust in the people making and serving it. I recently had a dining experience at Schwa in Chicago, where the menu was a tasting menu. We had no idea what we were going to be served, yet the restaurant is BYOB. So how do you choose? I brought a whole slew of things, because why not? And in an unexpected turn, the staff took my wine, sake, and sherry into the kitchen, and then they paired it with the dishes. This has never happened to me in a BYOB setting before, and I loved it. I, for one, love the discovery that comes from a new restaurant, but also from a tasting menu. In Japanese, this is called omakase. And while we in the U.S. most often apply this to sushi, the term itself means I'll leave it up to you. 
This is a style of dining where you take your trust of the chef one step further and let them choose it all. The food, the preparation, the order it's served. It can be like jazz, watching a chef riff and adjust to diners' allergies and preferences, but still playing within the same construct of their restaurant and their ingredients. My guest today is Adam Tortosa of Robin in San Francisco, which is described as a thoughtfully personalized omakase experience. Adam is the chef, owner, and designer of the restaurant, and I'm excited to have him here in the Heritage Studios on his brief trip to New York. Thanks, Adam, for coming out to Bushwick today to chat. Oh, thanks for having me. So what was home cooking like when you were growing up? What did you guys eat at home? Um, I grew up in San Diego. My parents had a garden. And you California people, you always have, like, I've had other people on this show who Same are from Cal, who grew up in California, and like, oh, we had avocados, and we had 17 kinds of fruit trees. Literally, and, like, that's yeah. what was my And, backyard. like, growing up in New England, I'm like, we grew some carrots and, yeah. like, had tomatoes in August in the yard. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, it's hard to understand how lucky you are when that's what you grew up with. Yeah. Any situation, I believe. Um, so, yeah, my parents had a garden. They're not the best cooks in the world. But they enjoyed gardening, they enjoyed cooking, they enjoyed, I think, doing it as a family. Yeah. Um, we ate, like, very, my dad, like, stir-fried whatever vegetables came out of the garden that day with garlic. We would put garlic in everything, it didn't matter. Um, we ate pretty simple. I wasn't always home when dinner came, sports or whatever. Yeah. So I started to do it myself yeah. at a certain point. I, the first thing I made was salsa, huh. like literally. <laughs> we have way too many tomatoes right. in the garden. <laughs> what do you do with them? Way too many. Like it's all, all grows at the same time: tomatoes, yeah. peppers, cilantro. Like, yeah, just chop it up. Learn how to use a knife. So you started very, I mean, from sort of from very early on with an understanding and a relationship to where your food was actually coming from. Yeah, and having it super fresh. Yeah, which I think a lot of people don't. Right? I mean, a lot of people don't get to have that kind of a relationship with where their food is coming from, and it's definitely clear to me that like that comes out in your dishes and in your food and the way you cook at robin yeah um yeah like i said when i was younger i didn't realize how important that was to like understand or to actually pick the vegetables or whatever it is you did um but yeah serving japanese food or sushi a lot of times you don't have access to where the actual thing came from because sure. it's from japan or yeah. whatever it is um so we're trying to use as much local ingredients as possible i mean we can't do that 100 percent. yeah um, but i mean you know you you made the point in another interview that i read that it makes so little sense that when you see a japanese restaurant a sushi restaurant in the united states it says like all of their fish comes from japan yeah it's like a point of pride yeah it's like <laughs> every other like every other restaurant is showing their like local ingredients as their point of pride yeah and like a high-end omakase, it's like we're charging you a lot of money because everything came from Japan. Yeah. So, so how did you then get into like you know? So you made salsa your first your first dish. Uh, what led you into being a chef and wanting to like have your own restaurant? Um, for whatever reason, I've always wanted to be a chef. Like, um, my mom's like favorite picture or story to share with anyone is like me with like an easy bake oven when I was like three. Or, <laughs> like that's what I wanted to buy. But that's what I wanted for Christmas. So. Yeah. Um, so, like, innately, um, that's what I was drawn to. Um, specifically, sushi, to be honest, 
I didn't know if I could become a sushi chef. I'd never seen a white guy make sushi before. Sure. Like I, I had no idea if I would, someone would teach me. Like, what's the process? All that. Um, I ended up going to college. I told my parents if I got into a decent college, I would go to college, and maybe the cooking thing would just be like an interest or a hobby on the side. Um, after I graduated, I still had no interest in getting a normal job, like all my friends. Um, so, I mean, I basically started working for Katsuya um, in LA after I graduated. So that's the start. And that, and and working there is that what led you into your interest in Japanese? Food? I mean, I've always been interested in Japanese food. That was my first time actually working in a Japanese restaurant. Sure. Actually, so I graduated. I Googled Sushi Chef School Los Angeles. I was in Los Angeles <laughs> at the time. Like, I had no idea what would pop up. And Katsuya was about to start like a three-month Japanese school program. Oh, like, wow. He, was, he would be like the head instructor or the founder or whatever. Um, so I got in contact with him. They were like, yeah, we start in two weeks. Sure, we'll take you. It's three months. Um, so I did it. There was me and, I don't know, six, seven other people. And Katsuya, the chef, it was, like, there all the time. You know, he's teaching the instructors what he wanted to be taught. Right. Um, so I built a relationship with him. After those three months, he hired me in one of his restaurants. Um, and that's, yeah, I started, like, washing rice, peeling vegetables. Right, because you have to start, you have to start yeah. at the bottom, right? <laughs> yeah, it was, like, very, I mean... What he serves is not traditional. He's like very, he pushed the boundaries sort of 15, 20 years ago. He's one of like the original yeah. kind of. But the way he works, the way his restaurants run are very traditional. Right. You have to apprentice. You have yeah. to learn all the basics. And then, like I didn't yeah. touch tuna, literally did not touch the tuna for three years. Right. Which is like long time looking yeah. back at it right <laughs> it was a long time during those three years actually. i was gonna say was it <laughs> yeah. was it frustrating at the time uh i mean i had no i the hardest thing for me probably was that i had no idea about like japanese culture right growing up in san diego it's so laid back it's so different than yeah. japanese culture and the respect and all this um i mean the first day i, I like showed up at the culinary school i wore shorts I, I had no idea what I was getting into. Yeah. I just like knew I was interested in it. I wanted to do it. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of lessons that I learned that really sucked at the time. Yeah. Um, just like with older Japanese guys. Um, not, I don't want to say picking on me because I deserved it. <laughs> but they didn't handle it the best way. Right. Right. It wouldn't... If they did it now, it would not be allowed. Right, right. <laughs> uh, When did you go to Japan for the first time? Um, so Katsuya, uh, Katsan took me to Japan. It was probably like after a year and a half of working for him. I went with him and uh, a couple of his office. And was that something that he did? Because I know at Robin, it's something that you do as sort of, you try to teach your staff, right, about yeah. what you're doing yeah. as part of the company culture. Um, he was just like, if you are making Japanese food and you're not Japanese, you should come to Japan right. with me yeah. and at least see where, what's going on. And did that change your perspective on how you oh, were making the food? I mean, it, w it wasn't like I got back and everything, a light bulb went off. But, it, it, yeah, I loved it. 
it's made me gone back. It was just so different. Everything's so different. It's my favorite place to travel. I mean, I've never been to Africa. There's lots of parts yeah. of the world I've never been to, but I've been to Japan six or seven times. Yeah. I love it. For me, too. Like, I've been to Japan a bunch, and I haven't seen a lot of the rest of the world. And when I have the time to travel, I don't choose the rest of the world that I've right. not discovered. I decide to go back to Japan, because I've also not discovered a lot of Japan. Totally. It's endless. I mean... Yeah. I mean, I've... I don't need to live there, but it is an amazing place to visit. There was a period of time, and I don't know if it'll ever happen, where I was obsessed with trying to figure out how to live there with my kids. Oh, I've done that. I've and how to get my, how yeah. to get my, like, to have my children have that experience. And we're, it's not going to be like, it won't be the same as living there, but I am about to, like, figure out a friend of mine in Tokyo is going to send his 10 or 11-year-old daughter to stay with us this summer for a month. You guys can and do the switch? And next summer, I'm going to send my daughter to live with their family for a That's month. That's so great. That's I'm really actually smart. super jealous. I want to go with can his I, family can, for a yeah. month. <laughs> the next summer. So. Yeah, maybe I'll get to go and then he can come here. <laughs> yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited about that um, because I think it is, at least for me, it is the most different culture, but yeah. it also makes a ton of sense to yeah, me yeah. that I've ever experienced. It's so like, just like the dedication they have to whatever they are doing and willingness to focus on this one thing and just work endlessly to get it as perfect as they possibly can it was just like really inspiring to see yeah so let's talk about the uh, the experience um, of robin i mean uh you know i'm i want to know about um the opening of it i mean so you didn't just like take a space that had been a restaurant and like no. pop yourself in and like change the curtains and paint the walls and open a restaurant that would have been nice and easy yeah <laughs> but no that's not what we did um, tell me about opening i mean we're kind of lucky in the sense that we got like a concrete box. It wasn't mm. an old restaurant that had plumbing issues or right. whatever, right? So it was nice. We had a blank, clean space. Um, I, this is my first restaurant. I had spent a lot of time dreaming about what it would be like in my head, right? I mean, I, t I made like 30 Pinterest boards of like what I pictured the decor to look, whatever. Um, I knew I wanted to work with like a lot of local small businesses just cause like this would be, I would own a small business and I would love to be supported by other locals. So, like it's a, a sense of community. Right? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I sought out a bunch of locals for the tables or whatever, the tile. And yes, it's more expensive than if you just bought it online or right. whatever, but I, I, there's something different about it. Um, I also knew, like, I wanted the space to have, like, a, a sense of energy. I don't know. It's hard to describe, but spaces have energy, right? Mm -hmm. And part of it is created by the design of the space. Um, so, yeah, a lot of thought went into it. I had, like, great people to help me out. Um, yeah, knock on wood. I, I love how it turned out. It's awesome. Yeah. How big is your staff? Um, we have, like, 25 people. Cool. So it's not like the restaurant is closed while you're here in New York. Oh no, they're they're very happy I'm here. They have, <laughs> they're probably running much better. So I I want to I want to talk a little bit about how like the you know the the I mean in this country like I said in my sort of opening, 
when we talk about omakase, I feel like it's almost always about sushi. But my experience in Japan is that, while you can have that experience, and there are plenty of places to have great sushi, um, some of my my personal most memorable dining experiences were really in omakase that wasn't necessarily about sushi. Mm-hmm. There might have been a piece or two of yeah. nigiri in there. There might have been a hand roll. There yeah. might have been an onigiri. Um, but it, it was much vaster than that. There were yeah. soups and grilled things and yeah. fried things. And, yeah. um, so, you know, for like what is, I guess, what is Robin's sort of, or what is your view on omakase? Um, I think that... For, so for me, omakase means like, you know, trust me or whatever. But that the chef or whoever's making the food is going to curate something for the guest. It's different than a set menu. Right. Right. A set menu is, doesn't matter who sits down, you guys are getting ABC. Right. Omakase is, I'm going to make something for you based on what you tell me you like or don't like or whatever it is. Which is awesome. I mean, I think there are very few restaurants that I'm aware of in this country that are actually doing that version of it. Because when we say omakase, I think what that means is to Americans is set menu. Yeah. So you go to a place that is known for its sushi omakase and like everybody sits down, they get the same 15 pieces of fish in the same order. And maybe there's some, you know, I mean, like, I mean, I've been to Nakazawa. It was awesome. But everybody ate the same stuff in the same order and then could add things on. Yeah, at it, the end, you get like a little exactly. add-on menu if yep. you want. If exactly. You want to spend but more it was money. not, you know, oh, you don't like shrimp, so I'm going to make you something else. And are you still hungry? I'm going to yeah. make you some more dishes or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, it's much easier to do a set menu. Of course. Um, <laughs> it doesn't sound like you've yeah. taken the, like, easy road, though. So, But I think it's, it's just, it's better for everyone involved as a guest. Like, you feel taken care of, like, as... You know, a chef, you want to take care of the guest. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the one issue is like, okay, we have whatever, 12 seats at the bar and some tables, 20 something seats at tables. And like, how do you do that with tables? Right. Right. Yeah. Like, they're not interacting with chefs. So, like, we put a lot of trust. I mean, we put a lot of trust in the chefs because there's no set menu. We are trusting them to interact with the guest and make whatever, like, we have probably like 50 different options every day that, you know, the server could choose from or the chef can choose from and they choose, you know, whatever. So it's collaborative time. between the server interacting with the customer and then the server and the chef communicating. Oh, no. About. So the server has full control over their table. Oh, fascinating. So the server interacts with their table. Very like, cool. So it's a little awkward, but one of the first things we talk about is price because don't want to like ever overcharge someone if someone doesn't want to spend more than 95 dollars, then we'll make sure they're going to get full without spending more than yeah i really i mean i i love that about the way that it's set up i mean i think on your site it says 89 to 189 but you'll be full no matter what and it's not it's not a value judgment i like that you're not making a value judgment or a monetary or wealth judgment about the consumer if the consumer comes in and they're like i really want to eat at your restaurant but i only have 89 yeah yeah and i totally understand that like you want to come eat and you don't want to spend 189 yeah. I under you can't like that be, yeah. that's fine doesn't mean you shouldn't be full by the end of your meal and happy exactly. right yeah. yeah you're not going to get 10 different unis or right that's whatever what we're going to serve you is going to be delicious but it also well, means that you're communicating with the consumer to understand that right like yeah. it is a give and take like yeah. they they of course can't come in and expect that they're going to get foie gras yeah at eighty nine dollars, but at one hundred, they, they will they will get a little, they will get a little, a little bit, bit far. But actually, I mean, it's kind of <laughs> it's banned. But 
but I mean, you know, but but to that point, like as a consumer, also like you know, people understand that. Yeah. Right? People know like if you go out for pizza, you're not expecting ribeye. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. and we talk, you know, when we talk to the guests about the price point they're willing to spend or want to spend. We tell them, they, a lot of people ask, like, what's the difference? And there is no set difference, right? It's not for $120, you're going to get X, Y, and Z. Yeah. But, you know, we can't give you 10 different unis for 80 yeah. You know, right. we'll just go out of business right. soon. And we exactly. just communicate that. Yeah. They, they understand. Um, but I like that as a small business, you're then including the customers as part of that relationship as well, right? And I, I would imagine, I can't wait to come and, and visit. Please. But I would imagine that you end up with repeat customers because of that. Because they feel like the restaurant is part of their community. Yeah, I mean, the last thing I want someone to feel when they walk out is taken advantage of. Right. Right. Like, we will always, I tell the servers, always round down. Like, if you're not sure if it's 100 or 110, run, like, just round down. Yeah. Um, because when someone leaves, if they feel taken advantage of, that's a, first of all, a terrible feeling. Yeah. That's gonna be shared with everyone they know. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, if they feel they got a decent value and they love the food and they love the energy, you know, hopefully they'll come back. And I, that was one of my big worries is like, how many people are going to come on a random Tuesday night to, you know, it's not cheap, but luckily, yeah, we have developed a decent amount of regulars. Um, it's really cool to see, obviously. Um, we had this couple come in like a month ago. So they live in New York now. Their first date was at Robin. Wow. They're engaged now. They flew back from New York to repeat <laughs> date number one. That's so cool. Which was like, I thought it was so cool. Like, we are in their memory of date number one. Like, That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. We're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors here at Heritage Radio Network. And when we come back, uh, I want to know why you named the restaurant Robin. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Are you enjoying this show? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Luke Griffin, and I'm the host of Bushwick Podcast. Each week, we share the remarkable stories of how artists, activists, and entrepreneurs collide in Bushwick a special Brooklyn neighborhood that's changing faster by the day. You can find Bushwick Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. Joining me in the studio today is Adam Tortosa, the chef, owner, and designer of Robin Restaurant in San Francisco. Uh, if you're just tuning in before the break, we were talking about uh, how the menu works, how the pricing structure works, and uh, the salsa that was the first thing that Adam ever learned <laughs> to make. Uh, so what's the why, – why did you name it Robin? Is it the – you know, I was trying to think about things that could, yeah. it could be named after, right? And I was like, well, let's see. It could be named after the bird. 
Uh, it could be named after a person. It could be named after the boy Wonder. Okay. I mean, Robin is my mom's middle name. Unfortunately, that wasn't the original name. <laughs> Got it. So, original name, um, basically it started with a bird name because of a Japanese fable, and my buddy made the logo, and I like loved the logo. And that's still the logo you used to? Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately... We had to change names. We got like a cease and desist from this bar in nowhere, California, for whatever reason. Um, and it's really embarrassing, but I never thought of, no one in my family thought, like we were trying to think of other bird names that it can be. And no one was like, hey, my mom, her middle name is Robin. <laughs> like my dad didn't think about it. My mom right. didn't think about it. <laughs> took like three weeks and I, I called up my parents and I was like, mom, isn't your middle name Robin? <laughs> She's like, yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, bird. There you go. Bird. Like, I, it, it's a good story. It is a yeah. good story. I it's like great it. to, like, I, it, to, I'm really glad it ended with Robin because, you know, I get that question a lot from customers. Sure. And I really like to say that it's my mom's middle name. Yeah. Like, that feels great. Yeah. And I'm sure it makes her very happy I mean you know th there is something very very nice about that especially when you're connected to food I mean we're sitting here the Heritage Studio is inside Roberta's Roberta is the owner's mom yeah that's know? great and you know they named their uh, I guess it's not they named their uh, sort of high end tasting menu restaurants not, sort of a mikasa, but not quite yeah. the same way yours is uh, Blanca because that's the chef's mom yeah it's uh, and like I can only imagine how those, how proud those moms are, yeah, right. like to see their son to build this successful, whatever you want to call it. So yeah. yeah, it's great. That's awesome. Um, do you think that there isn't like another restaurant concept that you would like to explore in the future? Do you feel like Robin is like, you know, uh, the, the place you're going to be for the next 40 years? Like, I'm, yeah, I think... Robin won't, I mean, I, I would love if Robin's around for 40 years, um, but I had to, I like to gamble. If I had to bet, I would probably bet, unfortunately, it's not going to be around for 40 right, the years. the way that restaurants right. work. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm so happy with how Robin turned out. I loved the, the process of building the restaurant. Like, that was something I've obviously never done before, and, and there was so many enjoyable challenging but very enjoyable aspects um i would yeah i'm very interested in exploring other types of restaurant concepts i don't think san francisco needs robin number two right like, there's only so many high-end omakase places a city sure. can handle and frankly i'm not that interested in doing robin number two like that won't you won't have the challenges you have um growing up in san diego like i went down to Mexico all the time and Baja food with fish tacos and ceviches and all that. Um, there's a lot of overlap between, you know, handling the raw fish and the Japanese aspect. Like, that could translate to this Baja-style food. Right, yeah. Um, obviously, like, not as pristine or high-end or whatever, but yeah. a well-made fish taco and a margarita 
It's a very delicious <laughs> meal. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> Sound, sounds, sounds pretty good to me. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to, to sort of think about, like, will Robin be there in, like, 40 years? Yeah. You, when you got to New York the other day, you said you went to Peter Luger's for yeah. lunch. Yeah. And, you know, First looking stop. at these few places like that that are super, you know, that have been there for a really long time and essentially doing the same thing for such a long time and that sort of, you know, weathers the test of time. But when you look at a lot of those places, they, you know, I feel like there's a weird, you know, like you've got Peter Luger's from the 1880s. Mm -hmm. You've got like the Oyster Bar in Grand Central, which not quite as old, but like still like first part of the 20th century. You've got Keynes also from the 19th century. You've got Bamonte's I mentioned uh, here in Williamsburg, Italian starting in 1900. But like, I can think of very few restaurants that are around from like 1951. Yeah. Yeah. You know? If there was a Jeopardy question, I would lose. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, You know, there's an interesting thing happening right now. Uh, Gage and Tolner, which was a landmark restaurant in Brooklyn Mm -hmm. that started in the 19th century and closed in, I don't remember, I think they closed in the 90s maybe, Um, but the interior was landmarked, so they couldn't do anything with it. So like it was an Arby's, and it was like all this other stuff, but it still had these fancy still, chandeliers whoa. and stuff. And now there's a restaurant group in Brooklyn that is taking it back over and leased the space. And it's basically the idea is to return it to, to what the it original was. form. Yeah. That's really And cool. to make it back into this kind of steakhouse style yeah. going back to the 19th century. So I'm really curious to see how that plays out yeah. as like a resurrection. Yeah. Um, I mean, being in San Francisco, so we, Jardinaire, which has been a staple in San Francisco and they've been open for 21 years or something. They're closing now, and they had a crazy run. Like to make it 21 years is so amazing to see, and it's so great that she was able to build that. And it's really sad to see her close that. Yeah. Right. It's that you know all these people are no longer like there's a community. There's people that had memories there. It's been open for 21 years. It as a concept doesn't necessarily fit what's going on in San Francisco now. The square foot, what it takes to run the restaurant, etc. I I mean, in 21 years, who knows? Maybe there won't be any restaurants that people actually go to. So Robin won't exist. Like, Yeah, the concepts and the way the restaurants fit into the world change over time. There's some that make it the 100 years, like Peter Luger's, right? Um, But... And Peter Luger's was great. They've, uh, yeah, they're doing everything right. <laughs> so yeah. I, but, you know, who knows? Maybe uh, there's, maybe we won't be using any wild fish in right. 10 years. Sure. Like, yeah. yeah. There's yeah, so many unknowns. Right. But I think that one of the things that I think, you know, one of the things that will continue is that people will want to sit down and eat together. Right. I hope I mean, so. you know, it, I hope it is so. something that is so ingrained. I mean, even even if you look at like restaurant history, right? I guess restaurants yeah. are not even that old. Yeah. Um, but sitting down around food, yeah, is ancient. Yeah. And so I think that for sure, uh, yeah, we will continue to see. But whether people are willing to leave their house to do it is, who knows? <laughs> right. People can just Skype each other. Yeah. Right. They can <laughs> Google chat. <laughs> I mean, I I don't know. I, I, I'm joking around like that, but I really do. I I believe what you're saying. Like there. There, like, there's something about going out to a meal with your friends, with your family, having like genuine hospitality and like eating delicious yeah. food. Like, I, I don't think that will go away. 
I just don't think that will go away. Yeah, I don't think so either. Um, so I have to I have to say thank you. You brought me some gifts, which I'm super excited to taste. Um, you brought me a couple of yuzu kosho. Yeah. How much fermentation do you do at the restaurant? I mean, we have limited space. We have no test kitchen right. research <laughs> development. And I'm not an expert in this. But we have jars basically everywhere throughout the dining room. Like being in California, being... You know, having access to all these different products. Like, we have yuzus growing in California. Right. right? We'll get them for, like, two months. They start out green, so we make yuzu kosho with, or we preserve them, and then we make yuzu kosho with the green ones. Then when they ripen up and they become yellow, we preserve them, and then these we made last summer. Oh, man, so good. The yellow one is so bright. Yeah, it's it's not super spicy. No, it's not super spicy. It's just so bright. Usually, yuzu kosho is made with the green ones, and it's... You know, the green ones are just the unripe ones, so it's, you know, only the zest and salt yep. and pepper. Mm. Where with the yellow one, like, we put in the juice, so it's way more mellow. Yeah. Um, yeah, the green one's definitely spicier, but still, I mean, such a great fresh flavor. And I feel like the yuzu kosho sometimes that you get from Japan, while delicious, is this is, is, is more salty than this. And it's, you know, could have been sitting on a, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been in a pat- jar yeah, for yeah, months, yeah, yeah. right? It it's had to old. come on by yeah, sea, yeah, yeah, had, yeah. you know. It's pasture, like... Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, we have California yuzus. Like, we're not going to be able to get them all year long. So what can we do to make them available for us all year long? And you know, we're constantly changing things. So it's so nice to have a quote unquote like pantry to choose from of like random ingredients. We don't when we preserving these things. There's ninety nine percent of the time there's no end plan with right, them. Right. You're not making it for a dish that you no, know is going to be on the menu no, in six months. Not at all. Yeah. Um, How do you create the dishes that, that end up on the menu? Um, it's usually starts with I'll, I'll go to the farmer's market a f- fish buyer will tell us he has X. We have this new product, whatever it is. Um, and it's like, okay, let's use it. What? It's very collaborative. Like someone, me, any, any of the chefs can come up with a dish. So someone will start with one dish, and then it's a lot of group think of, like, what do you think we should do? Oh, you think we should add a little lemon zest? Whatever it is. It's all group think. Like, it, never once have I been like, okay, I'm making this. I don't want your opinions going on on the menu. <laughs> like, I, I just, ne- like, the best dishes come from everyone putting in they're two cents. Right. Like, wh- why is my tongue the only tongue that should judge yeah. how the dish should be made? Like, yes, I do have, like, the final say. Sure. But I want to hear everyone's honest opinion. And then when that, when, so when the omakase experience is being uh, kind of created or conducted, I guess, by the server to people who are eating at the table, I assume if you sit at the bar, then you obviously are interacting directly with the chef. Yeah. Um, is... Is your kitchen set up so that, like, if it's a raw dish, it's one chef making it, and a cooked dish, a different chef is making it? Or is is one chef working with that one server to create for that one table? Um, so for the guests sitting at the bar, the chef they're interacting with will make 90% of the things. I mean, there's no back kitchen, so it. it's all of us in front. There is, like, a garmanger gar- station, whatever you want to call it, like behind the three chefs and he'll make some of the like we serve a soup like um, we serve a couple plated things um to break up the sushi because i do, i think if you eat 18 pieces of raw fish 
by the time you're finished, you're just not going to remember everything, right? Totally. Because, like, it just blends together. Um, so we like to break up those raw fish with, like, random dishes. So in your memory, it's like, oh, I had three, three things, and I had, like, these noodles, and then three more things. It, it just helps you think about your meal without just like oh 18 pieces of fish with like soy sauce on them okay (laughs) i think it was great i think uh, um so yeah sorry um yeah so usually a chef makes like 90 percent of your food i'll get a little help from the person behind them um and then dishes for the customer there it's not like a normal kitchen where we'll have like a hot app station or we'll have like a salmon station um you know, there's tickets that come in, and anyone, any chef can make any dish, Got basically. It. Yeah. Um, do you ever do anything, like, are there are there ingredients that are seasonal, like the yuzu, but say in, like, a protein that you know you can only get at a certain time of year that you're then creating dishes around? Like, is there, you know, I... I what comes to mind is, you know, sometimes like the big Japanese supermarkets will like cut a tuna. Yeah. And someone, you can come and see the demonstration of the tuna being cut and then people can buy the tuna from yeah. the thing, but that's only on like one day. Yeah. yeah. And they don't really sell tuna the rest of yeah. the time. That's that. So the question is, is there seasonal protein? Or anything. Protein, produce, any, anything where that you feel like it's like a, an event in the, oh, in the restaurant. An event in the restaurant. We don't we've never done a special event Hmm. um i don't i don't have a good answer for why that is yeah i mean i I don't think you necessarily need to i was just curious right because i feel like we're living in a time where people fetishize these things right like right now in new york it's ramps like everybody's like crazy for ramps even though like ramps are not actually that sustainable unless you cut the leaves and you don't rip out the bulbs but of course, they, they're not going to make it at the farmer's yeah. market. Like people can go yeah. forage that way themselves. Yeah. But it's not sustainable for there to be piles of ramps at the yeah. Square Green Market. Yeah. But there's tons of like young spring garlic available that's an invasive. Yeah. That, like grows, it, every, I mean, it grows in the parks in Brooklyn. It's crazy. We have like the wild onion all everywhere in San Francisco. And like we just started using that yeah. recently because it's <laughs> everywhere. Right. Like, great. <laughs> <laughs> Let's use it. It's delicious. Like we can make it delicious. I remember walking around in San Francisco once and seeing fennel growing in like oh, a tree fennel, pit in front of someone's house everywhere. And and so and I was just like I was like man, you could like if you were just like you could just walk around this city and like pick a gourmet meal. Yeah, like we have sorrel, like beautiful <laughs> right. yellow sorrel flowers everywhere. And like it's crazy because like yeah, then the San Francisco people who live in San Francisco they become numb to that. Yeah. Like it's beautiful. Like that's a, like in Japan, they have a great understanding of like what's beautiful. Like well, this and people have these over. tiny little gardens at like yeah. every house. I mean, I love when you ride the train through Japan. You're like every little backyard. Yeah, yeah, it's so cute. People are growing some of their own food, at least a little. Yeah, yeah. and like or like this beautiful orange tree. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're saying. Totally. Well. We're pretty much out of time, but Adam, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk today. No, um, thank you. I, I can't wait to get back out to San Francisco and Please. come check out the restaurant. Anybody who's going, uh, I looked earlier today. It looks like there's plenty of availability uh, at the at the restaurant. So if you're in San Francisco, if you're headed to San Francisco, uh, you know, check out Robin. I think, you know, it it definitely based on this conversation is going to present you with a memorable meal. Um, and definitely one that is unlike most of the other uh, omakase or set style menus that you can get in the U.S. Cool. 
Thank, Thank you. you so much. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to rate and review the show, and reach out to me if you have any questions. You can reach me via email at thefoodballer, and you can find uh, Adam on Instagram at adam.tortosa, that's T-O-R-T-O-S-A, and at Robin San Francisco as well. And you can check out their website uh, for information and reservations, robinsanfrancisco.com. Thanks very much. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>